In August of last year, the journal Security Dialogue published online an article entitled Is Securitization Theory Racist? Civilizationism, Methodological Whiteness, and Anti-Black Thought in the Copenhagen School by Alison Howell, an associate professor at Rutgers University, Newark, and Melanie Richter Montpetit, a lecturer at the University of Sussex. The answer they gave was an unequivocal yes. Yes, it is. They offered a number of reasons. These included, first, the overarching claim that, quote, colonial and racist assumptions about racial and civilizational difference animate the core political categories and theoretical frameworks of Western social and political thought, end quote, on which securitization theory explicitly draws. Second, the more general argument that key concepts in mainstream Anglophone IR, such as anarchy, depend on colonial and racist representations of the Americas and Africa, and that these concepts are also important in securitization theory. Third, a number of specific excavations of arguments, sources, and frameworks found in foundational texts of what they called classical securitization theory. In February of 2020, a correction to the article appeared, altering a citation and changing some of the language in a paragraph criticizing Lena Hansen's well-known feminist critique of securitization theory, The Little Mermaid's Silent Security Dilemma and the Absence of Gender in the Copenhagen School. In March 2020, Lena Hansen's reply to how in Richter Mampati was published online at Security Dialogue. Now, those of us who, on a good day, are at best marginal to both securitization theory and the study of race in IR, either knew nothing about any of this, or maybe were dimly aware of the existence of some kind of controversy? That all changed last Friday. Security Dialogue published a response from Barry Bazan and Ole Waver, the founders of securitization theory proper and whose work was the main subject of the original critique. They also sent out emails to a large number of IR scholars, at least one containing a letter addressed to Dear Colleagues. The letter provided a discussion of the matter and a link to the published reply and a link to a Racism and Security Studies website with a bunch of resources, including a much longer 98-page reply by Buzan and Waver. On the same day, Waver tweeted out a thread on the subject with plenty of links. All of these were quickly circulated around the IR community and, of course, on social media. They provoked a variety of debates, some friendly, some not, and some very strong reactions. In light of these developments, Patrick and I decided to try out a new format for Whiskey and IR Theory, which we're calling Whiskey Optional, in which we bring on guests to help make sense of an issue or controversy in IR Theory. Now, securitization theory does not have much purchase in North American IR, nor does critical race studies. Some IR scholars are hearing about them for the first time, and we imagine many grad students and others interested in IR theory are likely to be partially or even completely lost. Thus, our aim is to provide a guide to the perplexed. We're really pleased to be joined by three thoughtful and extremely qualified guests. I'm gonna let them introduce themselves in alphabetical order. So that means we start with Jared. Uh, hi, I'm Jared Hayes. I'm an associate professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts at Lowell and a visiting associate professor of political science at MIT. Hi, hi everyone. Uh, my name is Noel Mustafa. I was previously a PhD student at the London School of Economics. Um, at one time I served as a deputy editor for the Millennium Journal and I've now chosen to leave academia to pursue a career in progressive activism and as a practitioner focused on human rights issues as well as social justice causes. Hi, I'm Robbie, Robbie Shilliam. Um, I'm a professor of international relations at Johns Hopkins University. So Robbie, you are one of the leading scholars who studies race and global order. I'd just like to know from you what you think 
is the most important thing that we should know. Mm, mm. Well, I mean, I, I, I think um, that some background on some of the animating principles that has driven anti-racist thought and theorizing is, is really important so that people can get some kind of perspective on, on the, the debate and also the way in which the debate is um, politically and emotively charged in some ways, yeah? So I, I, I'm gonna give you four or five principles um, which underlie a particular part of anti-racist theory, a particular tradition, which is the, the black radical tradition. It's not the only one, but it, it's one which is invoked in, in the um, Howell and Melanie um, uh, Richter Montpetit article, yeah? So the first, the first principle is generosity. So what you have to think is of a peoples who have been dehumanized and who have been provincialized yet who consistently aspire to a humanizing and universalistic ethics, right? To do that, you re requires generosity, not just political generosity, right? Which can sometimes be seen as naivety, but also intellectual generosity. So when you look in a black radical tradition, you see these people um, engaging, reading, writing, meeting with plenty, plenty, plenty white scholars, European scholars, all different scholars, and also with their own traditions, and, and that can be problematic sometimes, but nonetheless, with their own traditions of thought um, and action as well. And um, one rarely sees that generosity um, repaid, right? So it's, it's difficult to see the um, significance in, for example, political science of black studies, Africana studies, um, decolonial thought, even post-colonial thought uh, in many of the traditions of um, political science, but in actual fact, the black radical tradition is consistently engaging, right? So the first thing I want to say is this is about a generosity of engagement, right? Which is, has intellectual consequences, but is, is, is a political project, right? Now, let me give you one example of this, yeah? So a little while ago, there was this documentary going around about CLR James, um, famous Trinidadian Marxist, um, the guy who wrote the first book on Communist International, uh, famous for his book on the Haitian Revolution much later. He has this documentary written about him, and it's um, written about him basically by this communist left front, basically, right? I'll just leave it there, right? All cool, really cool um, documentary, but the main part of it is to say that CLR James um, should be incorporated into the European tradition. And in fact, CLR gets his main ideas and his main kind of ethical thrust and, and intellectual thrust is, is actually through the European traditions of enlightenment and modernity. And so therefore, all these kids in university who are now talking about, you know, delinking from those, not reading Kant and all that are totally misplaced because CLR James himself was a fan of all these, these, these white scholars. And, you know, my response to it was, that's true, but I have never, ever been in a political science department which taught CLR James. Right? <laughs> and, and that was a response to an old colleague of mine who made that argument, but had never taught CLR James himself. So the first point is about generosity, 
right? And that's very important to understand in order to sideline this idea that there is a provincialism here, that there is an identity politics here. There's a massive generosity which necessarily underlines the black radical tradition. The second one is that it's fractal, meaning that it's always looking at patterns of power within power, right? And that's very much to do with the fact that it is deeply self-critical. If one thinks about, you know, the, the buzzword intersectionality, that comes out of black feminists. Black feminist scholarship from the early 1970s, the uh, Combahee um, River Collective, the Third World Women's Alliance, who were bringing together all these different positionalities, experiences, structures of oppression, and, and trying to figure out something bigger than, than the parts. You know, what was revealed when you put all these things together about gender, sexuality, race, class, nationality, right? So there is a, it, it's fractal by nature and it's fundamentally inherently self-critical. Now, of course, I'm saying all this, does every single scholar in every single minute manage to reach these lofty heights? No, <laughs> but that's nothing to do with the principles which animate it, right? The third thing is the diversity right? There is no such thing as anti-racist theory, right? You don't just read Fanon and then you've got it. You don't just read Charles Mills and you've got it, however valuable these people are. Uh, a colleague of mine at Hopkins, a historian, Jessica Marie Johnson, she did a little tweet thing the other day um, when she, where she asked people to, you know, uh, tweet back with concepts which are um, prominent in, in, you know, what you could call hashtag black theory. And at least 50 concepts come back very quickly from different ling ling uh, lingual zones, from different historical circumstances, from different disciplines, from different spheres, whether it be academy, politics, community, but not just casual concepts, but deeply illuminating and mobilizing concepts. So there's a massive diversity and depth of thought in, in, in the black radical tradition, in anti-racist thought in general. It's not simply, you know, like you could say, oh, you read Lenin, you know Marx. No, this is, or you read Kant, you know, you know Enlightenment thought. No, same with, with the black radical tradition. The next thing is that it's deeply historically embedded in its relationships to social justice and with, with community struggles locally and globally. Um, that's the case with how black studies came into the academy in the US. It's also the case in the, in the UK through the radicalization of the Institute of Race Relations. But that always means that stakes at play are extremely immediate. If we think about the current um, coronavirus pandemic, and you look at the percentages of people in the US and, and in the UK who are dying, there is a disproportionate amount of black people and Hispanic people dying. The consequences are real and they're immediate. And that means that when we have these intellectual debates using these, 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 these theories and traditions, it's very, very difficult for us to, to not consistently come back to these, to, to these very practical and dire, direct questions and problems and ask, you know, is what we're debating about, is it of consequence? That's not to say that the intellectual and the political and the, and the commu community politics are the same. They're not. They have different spheres. But the spheres are entangled such that one always has to think about the other spheres when you're in your own sphere. And the last thing, and I think this is why it gets emotive, actually, in the intellectual sphere, is that there is... Um, the, the, the argument of black radical tradition 
even if it is a, a humanistic tradition, is that it fundamentally displaces and challenges the Enlightenment thought and modernity, its, its answer. In other words, much critical theory is about saying that it is a critique of Enlightenment thought. And much of that, but much of that critique is an immanent critique, right? In other words, it's saying, here was this thing called Enlightenment and look, all these Europeans wrote about it, right? Um, yes, look, look, look how ridiculous they were in some ways. They were so optimistic. They thought about progress, never ending, sovereignty, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, we're going to critique that and, bring, and, and, and deconstruct all of that. Yet, nonetheless, we can use the same sources to do it, right? Now, the, the black radical tradition, like a lot of anti-racist thoughts, is no, that's not actually adequate because those sources which you're doing block out a whole section of humanity from the critique itself. Now, Jean-Paul Sartre wrote his famous preface to the, to the Wretched of the Earth, Fanon's Wretched of the Earth. Many Fanon scholars don't like it, right? <laughs> because, Fanon, because Sartre gets Fanon wrong, right? But one thing I love about that preface is that here is the, um, the um, you know, the, the Foucault or the Derrida of his day, the most famous and influential European philosopher of, of his day, who during World War II changed his mind and changed his mind by dealing with the consequences of colonialism and race. And that's his preface to the Wretched of the Earth, where he basically says to his fellow European philosophers, come into this scene. You'll see a fire in the distance. People are warming themselves around their fire. This is, and he's talking about basically decolonization. You know, they have their back to you. <laughs> You know, the, the fire that animates them is not your fire. It's not the fire you gave them. In these conditions, what he says do we do, right? That question has never been addressed fully, right? And, and that's the kind of question which black radical tradition necessarily poses as well as anti-racist theory. And I could go on about why that's important for IR, but I mean, I'll just, I'll just leave it there. So hopefully that just fleshes it out a bit. It comes in through IR in various waves. I mean, you know, you've got um, Bob Vitalis and Errol Henderson's work on the Howard School, Alain Locke, and, and um, before that, Du Bois, you know, in other words, saying that it's there at the beginning. In the UK, you have... Um, Chatham House, which is all about how do we, you know, render the world governable through the Commonwealth model of imperial governance. Um, and, and one small thing to say on that is that in actual fact, much of what we would call IR is never entered into the IR field because many of these scholars are actually writing outside of the university and certainly outside of political science. CLR James being just, just one instance. Now it's caught up and from the late 90s onwards, although there's people doing it before that, now it's in the field as some kind of voice. But this is not a new thing. This has always been there. It's just been there to the side you know, either either intentionally or, or or as a consequence of structures of power. Terrific. So, Jared, you're one of the comparatively few scholars educated in the United States who does securitization theory, which is another part of this controversy. What do we need to know about securitization theory? So it originates in the late '80s and early '90s, and it's so it's part of the Copenhagen School um, research project. It's one piece of it. The, there are other pieces, uh, regional security complex theory, Barry Buzan's sort of sectoral approach to security gets 
pulled in after uh, people, states, and fear. Ole Waver's securitization theory emerges in the late 80s and into the 90s, starts, I think his earliest work that kind of begins to develop this is 87 or 89. He works on it 93, 95. The, the defining text, the text that really kind of puts it in one place that makes it easily accessible is Security New Framework for Analysis, which came out in 1998. It's been very influential in Europe. So if you go to Europe and you mention securitization theory, no further explanation is needed. In the United States, as you alluded, uh, most American IR scholars may have heard of it at one time in graduate school, didn't pay much attention to it. So you generally have to explain it. So what is Ole um, and Barry Buzan and others, right? Uh, uh, Yapta Vilda, uh, Lena Hansen, it, through her critique has built on this as well. So there's a lot of folks I could go on, right? So it's not just uh, Ola's baby anymore, but he is the, he is the primary progenitor. Uh, what is he trying to do with this? He's trying to de-essentialize security, right? So coming out of the late 80s and the 90s, we're ending the Cold War. You have folks like Averistwith saying, well, the traditional approach to security studies a la Stephen Walt and his famous uh, dialogue, this doesn't really work for us anymore. This is a new world. It's not constrained by the superpowers. And so you get Ken Booth and the emancipatory uh, effort that's grounded in Everistwith. Ole's trying to walk a fine line. He wants to engage in traditional military issues, but he agrees that traditional approaches to security studies which primarily focus on the preparation for or avoidance of war or the conduct of war is insufficient for this new reality. So securitization theory is an effort to do this. So on the one hand, he wants to de-essentialize security. Whereas before security studies was an objectivist model where uh, analysts said, okay, here's the security problem. Policymakers, I've identified the security problem for you. You're welcome. And then usually took a step forward and said, okay, now here's what you do about the security problem. And so the contestation was what, over whether the security problem had been accurately identified or not, and whether the policies recommended were actually gonna deal with the security problem as it was identified. And so what Ole does is he debases that. He says, actually, no, security is a political and social construct. So he's in the 98 text, he talks about his approach as a radical constructivist. There is no objective state of security or no objective uh, measure by which something can be assessed as being security or not security. This is all a product of political processes. So this is quite profound, but uh, you could see it spiraling out of control. And in, on Twitter, I asked uh, somebody about race. I said, well, what if race becomes everything? Then how do we know when something isn't about race? And we, this same conversation took place in the 90s about security. And Ole and Barry and others were sensitive to this. So they wanted to sort of backstop the theory a little bit to say, okay, well, just because we say security doesn't have an objective grounding, we do say it is intersubjective. So how do we understand that intersubjectivity? And so they develop a theory basically of security politics versus normal politics, which they draw on Hannah Arendt to establish. So Arendt is, I'm not gonna go into detail here. I'm not an Arendtist uh, scholar myself, but you know, Arendt focuses quite substantially on the importance and significance of power in a loose sense of politics and the ways in which politics 
politics is the vector by which humanity gets things done. And so Ole says, okay, we could talk about normal politics. And he, he is clear in the 98 text that he is talking about, he's moving from operating from a basis of sort of maybe idealized visions of European liberal democracy, right? That his vision of normal politics looks a bit like that or looks a lot like that, but he is also recognizes that that vision of politics, what normal politics is, will shift depending on the context. The theory does not itself necessarily impute a specific model of normal politics, but there is a normal political operation, right? A set of rules, expectations, social structures, all of which inform our normal political everyday activity. Security politics, or the, which is accessed through the process of securitization, allows for a breaking of normal politics. So in liberal democracies, you can think about this as centralization of authority, diminution of political debate, um, and a bunch of pernicious, potentially pernicious uh, practices and follow-ons from those political dynamics. And that sort of theorization of the relationship between security politics, the breaking of normal politics versus normal politics is what allows them to backstop the concept of security and say, well, not everything is security, right? It's, you, can, you can't just have a person running around saying, oh, um, the example I use with my students is Canada is about to invade. That's preposterous. Nobody thinks that Canada is about to invade. So just because I say it doesn't make it security. A bunch of people have to accept that that is the case and in so doing, reorder the political system to allow a new, um, a new politics, a security politics to emerge in which our relationality has changed. The speaker of politics, that person's relationality to the audience changes, right? Uh, the speaker of politics then becomes able to do things they wouldn't otherwise be able to do because normal politics and the constraints of normal politics have been broken. Um, this enables what uh, Ole and Barry and uh, Yapta Vilda in the 98 text talk about exceptional measures. This isn't necessarily violence, uh, may often not be violence at all. So um, I don't know if it's in the 98 text or elsewhere. They talk about um, the increasing use of, of um, secrecy, right? Everything gets labeled top secret. Well, in a, in a sort of normal operating or liberal democracy where transparency is the idealized norm, secrecy is a breaking of normal political relations. So that represents a potential policy outcome of securitization. So a lot of my students get this wrong. They say, okay, well, securitization equals violence. No, in fact, that's not the case at all. Um, securitization just means a breaking of normal politics. So the model of securitization is referent object, something that is existentially valued, a speech act. This is uh, the sort of second major philosophical component, Austin's speech act theory, in which you are when you are saying something, you're actually doing something, right? In the making the speech of security, you are seeking to reorder social relations through that speech. Um, so you have a referent object that is existentially valued. You have a security claim with respect to that object that it is existentially threatened. And then um, you, they, don't, they don't theorize this clearly in the 98 text, but there's the existential measures that are required to address that. There's a bunch of facilitating conditions that go on around that. But what the key here is that this opened up security for European scholars to think about both traditional military security issues in a new way, 
Why do some things get turned into traditional military uh, security problems, others not? Why are the ways that these things are handled differently? We can look at the securitizing move and the ways in which that constrains actors or enables them. Uh, but it also allowed them to talk about issues outside of traditional military security that were previously off limits. So this is where Barry's work on sectoral analysis comes in. You can talk about environmental, societal. Actually, it's not entirely fair to credit that entirely to Barry because Ola's early work was on societal security, right? The, the concern that he had about securitization of the ethno-cultural other in Europe in the early 1990s motivated a lot of his development of the theory. But you can talk about how normal politics gets broken when people talk about their identity group being threatened by some other identity group. And that's, that was really alien to security studies in the 90s. Securitization theory allows us to bring all of that in and do so in a structured way. All right, well, thanks. Uh, and Nawal, uh, you were a PhD student at the London School of Economics, uh, whose research addressed intersectional feminist theory and gender issues in the context of social movements. You're now a practitioner who works with grassroots activists on social justice issues. What I think this is a place where a lot of these, um, the controversy comes together and hits the ground metaphorically and literally. Sure. It just, um, I kind of, I do want to defer to, to Jared and Robbie for especially the, the theoretical discussions because they're far more experienced than I am. But I think in terms of my own contribution, there's three key themes I want to address, possibly four. Uh, one of it is how we talk about race and how we understand it. Um, as I was mentioning to you all earlier, what struck me is I feel like before we even get to the point of having a discussion about you know, racial politics or racial inequality in the context of academic and theoretical modes of knowledge production, we still need a better understanding of how we practically discuss and understand race and racism in our everyday life. I've seen initiatives, uh, even when I was doing my PhD at LSE, that were welcome, such as curriculum development, revising courses, adding reading materials, um, but something strikes me that there's something that's still lacking that's insufficient. And I feel like this whole episode that played out on Twitter just shows us how much work we have to do and how we have to dig deeper. And I'm concerned that by focusing on academic curriculum issues, even though that's welcome, and I appreciate those moves, it's not enough. Um, human resource trainings and diversity initiatives, it's, it's not enough. My impression when watching the whole episode unfold on Twitter is that we need to go back to the drawing board and have a deeper, more sustainable conversation about a whole variety of issues, such as what does, what does white privilege mean? How do we define systemic racism? What happens when people talk past one another and they're not really on the same page, which often happens. And I think it did happen in this case. And also, how can we do better? Um, and I think there's lessons to be learned from both sides, whether we're talking about senior scholars who are privileged, who are in positions of power, and how they respond to critique and challenges with grace, uh, or should. And also from the standpoint of even people who are scholar activists, who are trying to challenge and transform the system, as, as Robbie was saying, how can we do so from the standpoint of, of generosity and also empathy and compassion while still uh, maintaining strength in that type of movement and how we mobilize resources. So I think that the three themes I wanted to address real quick in order, one quickly was self-reflexivity. So I'll talk about my own 
practices with trying to understand questions of what it means to be on the margins, what it means to have privilege. Second, I kind of want to shift that to a conversation about some of the misunderstandings about discussions concerning systemic racism that occurred with this episode. And I might tie that to theoretical discussions in like post-colonial, decolonial theory briefly. And then finally, um, I kind of want to bring it full circle in discussing this relationship between scholars and activists and how can we improve that relationship for the better so hopefully both sides benefit. I became concerned with these issues uh, as someone who grew up as an Arab American, as a Palestinian, and especially as a Muslim uh, after September 11th in the Midwest. I remember growing up seeing my own father who's an immigrant uh, from the Middle East and he's a full Palestinian. And he wrestled with racism in the workplace. Uh, he struggled, you know, our family struggled socioeconomically speaking. And especially September 11th, it, it was a very humbling experience to witness our own Islamic community, which, which was very racially and ethnically diverse. We had black Muslims, Arab Muslims from all across North Africa and the Middle East there. Um, and I would hear their stories growing up over the years. But at the same time, I thought, well, there's that aspect of feeling marginalized, but at the same, same time, I have to acknowledge my own privilege. I obviously, my mother's white, she's from Europe. Um, I look very white. And I know that um, even with the, the acknowledgement of those struggles that even Palestinians face, um, we're never going what it's like, for example, to be a black person in, in terms of how we um, encounter the police or the criminal justice system or housing accessibility issues. Um, even I'm never going to know what it's like to be uh, discriminated as someone who's a, uh, an Arab who might have like a darker section, for example. So I think as a starting point, I would encourage all of us to really step back for a second humble ourselves and say, you know, this is my life experience, but how can I do better? How can I be better? What are my limitations? What are my implicit biases? So that kind of dovetails, I think, with the conversation about systemic racism and where I think a huge misunderstanding happened. My sense with Buzan and Waver and, and with the caveats added that I'm not in a position to really determine if academic malpractice occurred. I'll defer to others who are more qualified than I am to make that call. But, and with the acknowledgement that in a hypothetical situation, if that happened, I would expect someone might be angry and upset about how that transpired. But I think one of the mistakes that were made is when I was reading Buzan and Waver's response, it seemed to me that there was this constant fallback on interpreting racism as being, or being racist, or even speaking like a racist, as if it was an essential attribute, as if it was static, you know, a symptom of a morally flawed individual. There, there wasn't, to my sense, enough of an introspection about how institutionalized and systemic this really is. Whereas, and I can get into a critique of how Howell and Richter Montpetit handled this in their article, which, as I was telling you guys, I thought, think it has theoretical and methodological flaws, um, and there were execution issues. But that said, I think the one upside here of that conversation is for us all to say and recognize how institutionalized is racism? How does it function as a system of power that's not just linguistic or cultural or artistic, it has political economy aspects it permeates every aspect of our daily life to the point where it operates in both visible but also invisible ways. And one thinker that comes to mind that I would encourage everyone to possibly engage in order to critically assess these issues differently is uh, Dr. Ibram Kendi, um, who has written a book on how to be an anti-racist. And 
whether someone agrees or disagrees with his conclusions, one could interpret the departure point as saying, any one of us, myself included, um, even if we are well-intentioned, good individuals, we might unintentionally or in, uh, intentionally hope the more common occurrences for people to unintentionally say something racist or that could be interpreted that way. So I think if we just recognize how systemic and entrenched the system is from the get-go, it makes it easier for us to ask ourselves or check in to, to, to ensure that we're we're not saying th things that are as problematic, for example. I'm not sure if we'll ever be able to escape racialized constructions. I, I hope that is a possibility. But in the meantime, I think we need to dig deep and perform those exercises of self-reflexivity about privilege rather than responding defensively, you know, blowing a situation out of proportion in a way that's incredibly harmful. And I think the takeaway from this that concerns me um, when I was reading the tweets online what impact will this have for younger researchers, graduate students, early career scholars study issues like race and racism in world politics? Is this going to set them back? Are they worried about a fear culture and bullying and intimidation? Um, I hope that's not what happens as a result of this, but I think we urgently need to take action now, whether we're academics or practitioners, to ensure that we're creating these inclusive spaces that correctly address structural inequality. Now, finally, in terms of comments I wanted to make about this relationship between scholar and activism, and I think this is kind of where I am a bit more critical of how and Richter Montpetit and how they handled the issue. Um, and I'm very happy Robbie raised um, his points, especially not only about generosity and compassion, but about the fact that there's a real world practical element here. And a thought that occurred to me as I was reading these tweets was, of course, it's an important discussion. There are professional ethics involved. There are serious issues involved. What's being missed along the way? And I think it's constantly important for us to not only think within the academy, but outside of it and check in with people who are activists and grassroots organizers and just everyday laypersons who struggle with this every day and to say you know what are the priorities that black indigenous communities have that other people of color communities have it strikes me that there's a very real risk that even if white allies within the academy have the best of intentions if their research agenda and their priorities are not necessarily aligning with people on the outside then it becomes a question of are we really helping those people or promoting the cause of anti-racism and hearkening back to decolonial scholarship, I mean, others can disagree with my interpretation here, but my understanding when I first engaged decolonial scholarship was it was trying to take stock of those real world struggles and issues. So amidst us focusing, for example, unfortunately on a 90 page memo, the, the haunting thought occurred to me that 10 days ago, a black man was gunned down and brutally murdered in the US for jogging. There are black people in my home country who can't even do simple things like have a barbecue or go to a movie theater or go shopping by facing the fear and the real violence and the worry of being profiled. But even there's more subtle, invisible forms that we don't always acknowledge regarding urban segregation and accessibility issues, not only to educational institutions, but housing. And I think back to the fact that uh, if I remember correctly, I don't think I encountered one black faculty member during my PhD program who was a permanent member of staff in my undergraduate university, which has made inroads. I'm, I'm very happy to see American universities really improve their track record here and they've put in the work. But at least my freshman year at the School of International Service, I think there was only one black faculty member. 
um, in my PhD program, if I remember correctly, I think I only came across one or two students who were either black or of mixed racial background. And so, and even when we look at the conversations online on Twitter, it predominantly seems to be, regardless of what side people are on, white academics talking about race. And so not to reduce it to a question of recruitment, um, obviously that is an important issue, but there are some deeper level structural issues that we're dealing with here. And it's going to require a more sustained conversation that includes formal and informal channels. It's going to require all hands on deck, the best of our talents and our abilities. And we have to constantly check in with the most marginalized among us, especially you know, black indigenous communities and other communities of color to, to ask, you know, what are your priorities? What do you need from us? We have access to these resources, whether it's libraries, other academics, what would you like to see from our end? And added to that, I would also say that we should see people who are activists and community organizers, not just as knowledge consumers, they're not just these passive recipients of knowledge that scholars produce. As Robbie was mentioning, there's a whole rich tradition of people out there who possibly are not professors or academics who are producing knowledge. So they are knowledge producers in their own right. So it's a call to recognize these alternative forms of knowing and being in the world. And I just think that's one uh, move forward. Okay, terrific. Uh, we're about to move on to talk a little bit more in detail about the original critique article that spawned this. I do want to underscore what Nawal just said, and this is something I know Robbie's written about and talked about uh, in his own uh, his own scholarship. We are probably the the North American and European IR community is about as white as it gets. Um, there is virtually no representation of. Uh, particularly uh, people of African attraction. There's virtually none. There's more representation in other ethnic groups, uh, but we have an incredibly specific problem with black scholarship. Um, and if you don't know that context, I think it might, some of this might be a little puzzling. Patrick, do you want to get us rolling? All right. So what I want to do here as part of part of the, the function of this particular podcast episode, right? We're trying to provide the context of a lot of these things for our uh, for our listeners. So we've talked a bit about the broader kind of theoretical context. I want to make sure we talk about the specifics of the particular incident that we're talking about, a particular debate discussion that we're talking about. And I want to make sure we get the timeline right and then go through um, what are basically three pieces. There is an initial piece that's published that's a critique of securitization. There's a response to that piece by Lena Hansen. And then there is a response to that piece by Oli Weber and Barry Buzan. But I wanna start out with the first piece. All these occur appeared, by the way, in Security Dialogue, a particular journal, which perhaps not accidentally has also been a journal that over the years has published an awful lot of work using securitization theory, which is the object of discussion here. Um, so the initial piece, which is by Alison Howell from Rutgers University and Melanie Richter Montpetit from the University of Sussex, appeared online in Security Dialogue with an online first publication in August of 2019. 
there was a correction to the article that was issued in February of 2020 that changed the wording of a couple of sections. Um, there may be a second correction coming, it's a little unclear, that was sort of mentioned in one of the footnotes in uh, the Waver and Buzon response. Um, but again, mo modifications to in particular ways that things are cited, in particular word choice uh, occasionally. And that's important to mention because there are slightly different versions of the article in circulation. And Security Dialogue, like most journals, has a pretty good system on their webpage. When you go, you can see where their various, various uh, corrections are, and the version that you download is sort of the most up-to-date version. But just be aware of that. If you happen to download this piece several months ago, uh, then it may not be exactly the same piece. So the thrust of the Howell and Richter Montpetit criticism which they say pretty clearly on the fourth page of the article, uh, racist thought is fundamental and integral to classic securitization theories, conceptual and methodological project. So it is clear in their initial formulation of this, and they go on to define racism slash white supremacy as a system of power, that this is not in the way that they articulate it about particular people being racist. It is about a system of thought. It is about a particular style of analysis being uh, wrapped up in a system of power, which is racially uh, segregated and racially discriminatory, that that's kind of what they're, what they're interested in. They argue in the course of this critique that there are three specific ways in which securitization theory should be understood as racist. Um, the first line of critique is what they call civilizationism, basically a narrative of world historical progress where you have less advanced civilizations and more advanced civilizations. They argue that the notion of normal politics in securitization theory is not in fact content neutral but is a particular valorization of a certain kind of desecuritized European politics, that normal politics in securitization theory always means the kind of politics that we see in advanced industrial democracies in Western Europe, that that is the sort of norm that they are utilizing. Um, so on page 11 of the article, they say, the idea that there has been white civilizational progress away from racialized primal anarchy is omnipresent in securitization theory. Right, so that's their first line of critique. As part of that line of critique, they also point out that uh, securitization authors, particularly Buzan and, and, and Waver in some of their foundational work, uh, refer to authors like Samuel Huntington and Robert Kaplan and the notions that they can be found in Huntington and Kaplan, which are very explicitly about sort of backward and forward areas of the world. So that's one of the lines of critique here. There is a second line which is what they call methodological whiteness. And so their argument is that securitization theory, quote, naturalizes the racial status quo by eliding the crucial role of racism in political systems or intellectual traditions. So the argument is that by talking about normal politics, securitization theory obscures the extent to which normal politics is itself erected on a foundation of racial domination that the normalcy of normal politics is built on imperial and colonial and various kinds of structural violent foundations. And by not talking about that, then securitization theory becomes to some extent complicit in normalizing those things. 
in here, this sort of nicely links to a point that Noel brought up a little while earlier. Um, my colleague at School of International Service, Ibram Kendi, uh, in that book on how to be an anti-racist, makes the rather strong argument that it is not possible to be a non-racist, that you are either a racist or an anti-racist. And if you are not explicitly anti-racist, you are tacitly being racist by holding up the racial, the racial system. Um, they don't cite Kendi here, but I think that's a very helpful way of understanding what they mean, or at least help me understand so what they mean by methodological whiteness in this, in this particular situation. Um, and there is, and I'm sure we'll get back to this, there is a particular point in that methodological whiteness critique where they are making a lot of, uh, a lot of the argument turns on a particular quotation from Oli Waver's work, which may actually not be a quotation of Oli Waver's, but is actually a quotation of an epigram to an article that Oli wrote back in 2015. And so there's some, there's some sort of technical issues there in terms of like what they're attributing people to. So, but let's sort of flag that. The third line here, uh, which links back into some of the broader tradition of, of the black radical activism, uh, radical thought that Robbie was, uh, was giving us the context for a bit earlier, is anti-black racism. And the specific critique, the specific charge there is that securitization theory and securitization theorists always characterized Africa as a place of primal anarchy, as the place uh, where, uh, where civilized securitized place, civilized desecuritized zones have to avoid falling back into that kind of primal anarchy. And that for, for Richter, Mon Petit and Howell, the argument is that it's no accident that Africa is always what's upheld as the sort of zone of primal anarchy. Um, so the punchline for that on the 16th page of your article, it is incumbent on the civilized not to turn away from the plight of the primitive, but the civilized must also take care to avoid being corrupted by their primitive anarchy. So those three lines of critique are in Howell and Richter Montpetit's characterization, not accidents. These are fundamental to securitization theory, that these are the foundations on which securitization theory is built, that this is kind of hard-coded into the analytical and conceptual apparatus of that. Um, Robbie, do you want to say anything locating that line of critique a little more explicitly in the kind of black radical tradition that you were talking about before? And then I don't, I don't want to moderate this super heavily and kind of throw mm. it open from there, but I thought I'd start, just give you a chance to sort of link that back to some of the stuff you were, you mm. were flagging at the outset. Mm, mm. So, I mean, the, 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 the project that they're mobilizing here is one which is not directly about and this is goes back to what Noel said but not not something that is directly about racism as individual prejudice or as intention but about the, the racialization of um, modes of thought right and the, the, the uh, or, or in fact the racialization of the episteme right and to the extent that that racialization regardless of intention tends to produce frameworks um, and explanations which even if not racist are not anti-racist <laughs> if that makes sense right so probably the person who's who's done the the, the the most signal work on this in the last 30 40 years is sylvia winter um jamaican humanities person who who, who takes this right back to the um actually the beginning of the humanitas project for, for her especially after 1492 but what what we can i mean if, if i can sound the depth of it so that people can get a, get a sense of it 
one of the arguments in this traditional thought is to say that the very idea of the humanitas itself, right, makes a distinction between those who are capable of fulfilling the potential of humanity and those who are not properly human, right? Those humans who are not properly human. So, you know, the famous um, Italian scholar Petrarca, who, who, who initially reached back to Cicero in ancient Rome to, you know, have what we now call the liberal arts, rhetoric, uh, history, language, you know, the cultivation of, of the humans such that it frees itself from its constraints, all that kind of stuff. Um, Petrarca is, is seeing this as a crusading, literally a crusading project against Muslims. Right. Um, and, and this must be a Christian redemption um, linked up to the to 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 the apocalypse, which is forthcoming. Right. Now, by the time to one, two centuries later, um, you start to get a more secularized version of this where it's not so much um, uh, the Christian as the human and the uh, the Muslim, the Jew, the heathen as the not properly and unredeemable human, you start to get it linked into um, uh, anthropological properties, right? Ways in which societies arrange themselves, the practices they have, the capacities they have to exercise rationality. And this is where Count Buffon comes in with his uh, uh, argument about anthropology. This is where Immanuel Kant learns his anthropology from. And what you get here is a distinction between humanitas or those who are who are competent to pursue the humanitas and the anthropos and the anthropos that are not properly human so the way in which methodological whiteness works in this respect at least in disciplinary form as people who make this argument would say is that what we then get is we get a division between anthropology which is all the wild and wonderful and wacky and crazy cultural you know freaks around the world and then you get sociology, which is about the individual, the modern individual in society, history versus folklore. Yeah. And indeed, politics, um, politics versus anarchy. Right. So um, this is the depth to which th this this kind of tradition is sounding, if that makes sense. So it, it, it's not it, it is not to say this tradition is not to say that if you read Immanuel Kant, you're going to you're going to burn, right? <laughs> Do you get what I mean? It's to say, don't read Perpetual Peace or Critique of Pure Reason without reading the anthropologies, right? Because in the whole, what you end up then getting is the fact that Kant ascribes, and he calls them germs. This is the beginning of eugenics, right? He literally calls them germs. You get in Kant the attribution of all the good things, critique, reason, natural right, do unto others as you would have done unto yourself, to the white race, and he uses Raza, right? And then you get to all the other races, a inability to actually utilize their, their, their rationality, right? Even if rationality has hard-coded in, in the human condition, some are not able to feel the sublime and the beautiful, blah, 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 sufficiently such that they can actually utilize their rationality. So that the argument about, about universality, rights, reason, is always a provincial one, which masquerades as a universal one. Well, in fact, in Kant, it doesn't even masquerade. As these traditions get brought forward, get brought into IR, for example, you know, Kant's anthropologies get left out. 
So now when you read Kant, you think, oh, this is all about universal rights. You know, oh, well, even if Kant was a bit of a racist, still we can use this idea of universal rights. Well, the idea of universal rights is, is, is predicated upon a distinction between those humans who are competent to exercise rights and those humans who are not competent, not properly human enough to exercise rights, which is why, as my colleague Jasmine Ghani has written, you know, in Kant, the argument about hospitality is always the rest of the world must be hospitable to Europeans, but there is no argument about, about Europeans being hospitable to the rest of the world. So we might, and I do have problems with the execution of, of, of the article we're talking about. I have uh, quite big problems with that, but that's the kind of profundity of the, of the project which they're kind of dipping into. Gotcha. So before we move to talking about the responses, I want to give our other two guests an opportunity to weigh in on the particular line of critique that, that they see in, in this particular uh, this particular piece. I think Robbie's done a great job sort of showing us how how much this is 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 about I mean, it's about securitization, but it's also not about securitization. It's about something much bigger and much deeper, much more, much more kind of firmly encoded into like the European philosophical tradition, um, where securitization is an example of, of some of this in, in some ways. So, uh, Noel, Jared, do you want to, uh, anything you want to jump in on with this particular piece before we turn to the responses? Uh, Jared, do you want to go first? Well, it's, I mean, it's a little bit challenging from from my standpoint, because I don't, uh, my reading of the original piece is, is fundamentally linked to the responses because when I'm reading the original piece, I don't actually see a lot in terms of securitization theory that I recognize. And so it's really difficult for me to not fall into critique mode. A part of that is also that they're coming at this, I, I'm approaching this from the standpoint of somebody coming out of securitization uh, theory studies if there is such a thing, whereas they're obviously coming at this from the standpoint of critical race studies or I'm sure, I'm sorry if I've sort of mislabeled it, but that's the idea, right? They're coming out of that tradition. And so it's almost inevitable that my commentary on it will be pretty difficult to disaggregate from the sort of a more sort of sympathetic reading to securitization theory. I think that itself even is a fairly revealing characterization in that there, there's, a, there's a kind of level difference in terms of where these arguments are operating. Um, and I think that's important to keep in mind here, not that one side is necessarily correct, but that there are different ways of locating where these issues are and how specific they are to particular research traditions to how much broader they are than sort of implicating a whole variety of different sorts of research traditions. And that, of course, I think will become important in a few minutes when we start talking about the reply, because the replies have tended to come more from the specifics of securitization theory. Um, but Noel, anything you want to say on the, on the initial article first before we kind of turn to the other two? Yeah, sure. Um, I, I would agree with Robbie. I think the idea of excavating the racialized concepts or even problematic racist origins of inner thought of the theories and concepts that we use is incredibly important. Um, and especially in terms of recognizing the legacy and how it gets transformed into the present in terms of noting those, those parallels. And I do want to mention so before delving into a few theoretical methodological flaws, not in too much detail, I just want to mention a few general issues. The tragedy to me about this is it was a missed opportunity if it had been executed better because there was one point in there that struck with me where they said we need to actually think about how we talk about race beyond Eurocentrism. 
and the coloniality of power. And I don't think that should be taken as dismissed with the literature that addresses Eurocentrism, but I think it, it's a problem if we see just focusing on that topic as the be all end all of discussions of racism amongst uh, IR theorists. Do I think that happens? No, I think there is an a implicit recognition. There could be more of a linkage, for example, with critical race studies. And as Robbie was mentioning, other diverse, rich traditions of radical black thought, but it seems to me like a very, in, um, like a potential agenda that needs uh, elaboration, clarification and expansion, if you will, to recognize that rich diversity. Now, a few things, one is I definitely, the authors should have done a better job of really clarifying not only how they're defining racism, but how are they situating that within that literature? Because they're, even within that literature, you're going to have a different understanding, for example, of how uh, race intersects with structures of power and so forth. So I just, for me as a reader, I wanted a greater clarification of that. Also, I thought personally, and others can disagree with me on this, if I were suggesting just general broader revisions, I thought there were two ways that article could have been done or structured differently that might have promoted a more productive conversation. I can't say for sure whether Buzan and Waver would have responded differently. I honestly don't know, but I think it would have shown more of a, a good faith effort. Um, in the first place, I thought to myself, uh, without not to say that there's like an anti- racist theory, I don't want to be misunderstood here, but I think they could have, you know, as you were mentioning, cite people like Ibram Kendi just as a reference point and then take it from there in terms of adding sources to say, okay, we are adopting an explicitly anti-racist ethical position. This is what it means to be an anti-racist. This is why it's ethically desirable in contrast to these other positions that hypothetically are are possible. And I think if they had taken that as a departure point and even cited that book among other texts, it's possible more readers would have said, nodded their heads and said, you know what, okay, now I can get where they're coming. And then if they had done that as like their starting point, then linked potentially to decolonial scholarship to say like a taking stock exercise, this is where we're at with decolonial theory or postcolonial theory. This is how we have a different departure point and different ethical theoretical position would do to take us in, in new directions. And then finally, I think the third part of that potential article in my head is they could have focused on the concept of the failed state, or they, if they were worried about backlash, which is, it's true, there, there are concerns about colleague backlash, professional reputations, perhaps they might have gotten away by starting that conversation and intervening by focusing on a concept like the failed state or the democratic peace, or just throwing stuff out there by saying, you know, anti-racist ethical debates have focused a lot on domestic processes. They are fundamentally global how can we scale this up? Um, but it, it would have allowed them to engage political texts in a different way, not to let IR theorists off the hook. I don't want that to seem to be what I'm suggesting here, but I just think strategically they could have approached it in a way that might've been more productive of that dialogue. Alternatively, if they wanted to retain that focus on security theory, they could have recognized and focused more. In fact, if I were them, I would have focused more on the second and third generations of scholarship from people who have tried to use securitization theory to highlight issues such as how Muslims and, and other minorities, immigrants, asylum seekers are constructed as being national security threats. So for me, that would have shown a deeper engagement with the literature. It wouldn't have focused exclusively on Buzan or Waver. So that personal element, I think, would have it wouldn't have been perceived in the same way necessarily. Other scholars in that tradition, like Jared and others, I'm, I, mean, I don't know if Jared would have read it differently in that case, 
but um, I think it, it would have forced them to have a, a richer and a deeper engagement with the literature to show a demonstration of understanding that theory. And then they could have said, okay, this is what that theory has done, but there are these blind spots. There are still these concepts that have problematic histories to them. We need to excavate them further. And they could have actually tried to decolonize securitization theory. It didn't have to be taken in that direction, or they could have promoted a different alternative theoretical approach moving forward. But I just think by first at least recognizing what ST has done instead of saying cancel it, um, that would have moved them forward. And just one quick minor point and taking off the theorist hat for a second and putting on the activist hat. I think my concern with the conclusion of canceling theories and thinkers is that I think that arises from a bit of a problematic tendency among some leftists and progressives. I, I don't want to say that there's never a moment where canceling, you know, a practice or callouts are not justified, but I think we need to be incredibly careful using those types of terms, especially in terms of maintaining academic rigor and standards, and also just strategically thinking, is this really going to promote anti-racist scholarship? Is it really going to promote anti-racism as a cause? And so there's more discussions to be had, not only among scholar activists, but also progressives and people on the left about this whole idea of cancel culture and call-outs and are there limitations and is it getting a bit toxic and problematic? So I'll just leave it there, basically. Can I, I ask a question? Because something um, Nawal's just said is something that I've commented on on Twitter and I, and I wanted a chance this was a nice chance for me to talk to both Nawal and Robbie about this. So I was really struck by the articles. You mentioned this, Nawal, the cancel conclusion, right? It was a very, I've used this term, mani very Manichaean kind of reading of things that it's, you know, securitization theory is, they don't use the term evil, right? But they run through a sort of litany of, of uh, race, racial, racist strikes against it. And then they conclude, well, the whole thing has to go, at least the classical part, they sort of hedge a little bit by saying second, third generation, they're not getting into that. Although it's really difficult to understand how you can have a second, third generation if the classical foundations are, are so badly uh, flawed that, that they have to be completely ejected from uh, the discipline. And even the word securitization probably can't be rehabilitated. And so I was really struck by I made this point on Twitter that it didn't seem to me like they were starting a conversation. It really felt like they were foreclosing a conversation, you know, rather than say, okay, as you pointed out, Nawal, how can security, where are the gaps of securitization? Where are the blindnesses? How does it, you know, fail to address these issues in race in these ways, X, Y, and Z ways or whatever it was, let's just get rid of the whole thing. And so I was yeah, really curious as to whether that is, a sort of typical kind of argument in the literature that they're coming out of, because I admit my uh, ignorance in this uh, almost entirely. I mean, I teach a day on race and IR, but that makes me not qualified to speak on this in any way. Is this a tip, sort of typical thing or is this exceptional to their article? Um, so, I mean, I think it's important to go back to what Patrick said about, you know, the a conversation between very different dimensions and levels of analysis, right? Um, and if that's misarticulated, um, depending on what audience you want to actually try and convince, then then that can have very misleading effects, right? And I think that is what happens in, in this piece. But we also have to be very, very careful, right? About the, um, we, there's a fine line to be walked, right? On the one hand, 
everything should is up for critique right including within you know anti-racist circles i mean yeah and anybody who's done any activism will know that actually it's it's, it's you most of it is is self-critique right so anyway that has to ha that that has to be there but at this at the same time we have to be careful about what is fostered upon these arguments right so for example you know i don't think they use the word cancel right and I the idea did. I don't think they do. Oh, okay. And, you know, the idea of cancel culture is something which is created by the right, yeah, and even the far right, as a way to not just shut down the very idea of liberal education, right, which is seen as not orderly, not patriarchal enough, you know, uh, too queer and too, too black and too Muslim, right? But it's also to actually extricate those peoples and bodies out of the academy, Right. That is a real project which goes on. You know, my old place, Queen Mary, you know, East End of London, there were fascists outside the gates sometimes. You know, and that's a predominant. That's a, that was a 40 or 50 percent Muslim student population. Right. So, again, these stakes are really real. And we have to be very careful about what what characterizations we use to describe them and where those characterizations come from. Right. That is not to say that there shouldn't be critique. That's not to say that sometimes, you know, like as in the case in this argument, if you, if you don't want an argument, why, why? Well, then who are you writing for? That's one issue. Right. But then to say that that this is cancel culture. Well, in actual fact, in a lot of the literature, the, the term used is not cancel, but abolish. And abolish has a much deeper historical resonance and philosophical resonance, which is about which is about saying we know that we cannot get rid of this, but we must prefigure our politics such that we can get rid of it in order to figure out what the possibilities of a more humane living might look like. Now, that's often to do with the case of prisons, right? In other words, you can't reform prisons. You need to abolish prisons. But the, but, but, but the meaning there is not cancel justice, cancel law and order. Do you get what I mean? It's to radically reconfigure Right. All, all the issues around which, you know, the problem of order is the, the answer is prison. Is there another answer? Right. So the one thing that I would say and, and the other thing I was going to say is that I agree with most of the technical critiques that Bazan and Weaver give of the piece. Right. Um, now, um, what I don't agree or what I find a problem is the language which is being used around the critique which is introduced every now and then by Buzan and Weaver but now is being reflected and refracted in social media so things like calling out woke culture woke 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 is an allusion to blackness and 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 woke in the academy is all about saying that woke should not be in the academy right because it actually demeans the ethos of the academy which is impartial self-critical you know, non-identity politics or that universal, all that kind of stuff, right? So it's actually a utilization of a term which was about to be woke is to be self-critical, right? It's now actually the right has reconfigured that as to be a diss, right, on people who are actually trying to be self-critical and introduce more self-critique into our institutions. Now, that, that has very pernicious effects. In, in the responses, I can see that Buzan and Weaver are very clear about knowing that these issues exist, right? I recognize that and acknowledge that. 
But if you are clear, then you better, but you better be clear about what the consequences of pursuing them are going to be, right? So, so there's a little phrase, let me do this and then I'll shut up, right? Which I find very problematic. And like I said, I'm actually in, in agreement with the technical critique that, that Weaver, we, especially Weaver gives, right? We apologize for presenting this concern in such an old fashioned way as parochial or Anglo-centric. So they're being ironical, right? Presumably it'd be better if we write that Howell and Richter Montpetit want to uphold a hyper-imperialistic, exterministic epistemicide. Now, now, now just hold on a minute here. That's, you know, an, uh, that's a bit of rhetoric, right? It's also undermining whole languages, right? Intellectual languages, which have been developed to do what? To actually explicate the importance of genocide as part of the colonial modern project, right? And also the erasure of forms of knowledge, which might help us to think better about the world. Now, what is the purpose of the university? You get what I'm saying? So this is, this is where we have to tread very, very carefully, which does not mean or excuse us from doing the self-critique or to say, no, actually, guys, I don't agree with that. I don't think you did that bit right. But it's also to speak to Noel's point that there are scholars of color who use securitization theory to explain, explicate, and to actually draw political attention to xenophobia and racism. And those people, I, the same critique that I just had, those people have to figure in this critique that these guys are making. Otherwise, where are they? What, are they just being duped? I don't think they're being duped. No, I think, Robbie, that's excellent. And thank you so much. It actually is an exercise, again, of humility and constant learning. I'm glad that you addressed, you know, the term cancel culture in that way, because I, admittedly, I wasn't thinking of it in that way. But now that you framed it in that way, I can understand completely where you're coming from. And again, I don't want this to sound as if I'm condemning either of their activisms. I've actually um, had limited interactions with uh, Dr. Montpetit on occasion. I highly respect her activism. She's done amazing work for queer rights, LGBTQ communities, even on behalf of Palestinians as part of a solidarity movement. That's why it was heartbreaking to me. And there are real world consequences that I truly wish I don't know if it's the case that Buzan and Waver just weren't considering how much this would become a firestorm and it would escalate, or if they were willing to take that risk to defend what they thought was um, an attack on their reputations. I, I honestly don't know. But this is the reality, the grim reality that we're dealing with. And the fact that those two women scholars, even if we disagree with the technical merits of what they were doing, what they were saying, no one should face the level of cyber bullying, online harassment, vicious attacks that they've received on Twitter, um, via email. It's been like this coordinated campaign. And so I think as a lessons learned, I really hope that especially senior scholars are much more careful regarding how they use Twitter or how they address junior scholars, because this is very real here. And it's definitely what Robbie was saying. I hope that uh, younger scholars of color don't feel further marginalized and attacked for that. In, in connection with that, you could say compassionate or constructive self-critique, there are internal debates and discussions to be had. And I think social movements and community organizers have those discussions regarding which targets do we focus on? How do we use our resources emotionally, materially, and otherwise? How do we spend our time? And even though, and I have heard the term like abolition um, that Robbie is using, and I'm very sympathetic. Personally, do I necessarily agree with it? I think there is internal disagreement of to what degree, I would agree we need radical reform of many institutions, whether it's in the criminal justice system, among so many other things. Um, but is it practically feasible to abolish them? You know, that, 
personally, I don't think that's possible or desirable, but that's just my two cents. And looking back at the article in particular, you know, it would be interesting, and I wish we could get a response from the original authors of, were they writing this with an abolitionist idea in mind? So that's another missed opportunity. Could they have framed it theoretically of this is what an abolitionist agenda would look like in terms of addressing theoretical development in IR? Do we try to rescue and resuscitate theories or do we get rid of them? I mean, I, I could be mistaken. I might've misread it. I thought that I heard the term cancel in the conclusion, but I'd have to go back and double check. So don't quote me on that if I'm wrong, but at least I did interpret the article in the conclusion as seeing, seeming to be dismissive of the overall project of securitization theory. And I just would leave it there in terms of a discussion of, again, resuscitate, radically reform or abolish. And I'll just defer to you guys on that note. Well, and that's a great, that's a great, point to sort of pivot to the various responses that have then come out to this. It turns out that actually the, the term cancel isn't in the original Howell and Richter Montpetit piece, but it is in oh. Buzan and Waver's 98-page uh, okay. rebuttal, not in the published 4,000-word piece that appeared in Security Dialogue, but in the online appendix that they have, which is a much, much longer, much more detailed document going through things. Um, and there, they talk about the conclusion as being cancel securitization theory. Um, and in particular, actually near the end of that article, they suggest that uh, that cancel securitization theory is something that is imported from what they call a U.S. North American tradition of of label and shame culture. Um, actually, I didn't quote that quite right. Um, a particular U.S. U.S. American tradition. It's a mode of critique, call out and cancel. So that's the way that they refer to it. But let me give this some some timeline sort of sort of bits here. So, the first published reaction to the Howell and Richter Montpetit piece that appeared in Security Dialogue was by Lana Hansen, who is mentioned in the article. Who is she herself has a sort of interesting relationship to the Copenhagen School of Securitization Theory, and in fact, one of the points she makes in her response is that her piece isn't actually a part of securitization theory, but as a critique of securitization theory. But she is a professor at the University of Copenhagen. So Hansen's piece appeared online in March of 2020. And Hansen's piece argued that not only was her contribution, which is this piece on the little, the title is called the Little Mermaid piece is usually what the way it's referred to, um, that that's actually a critique of securitization theory. And in particular, she suggests her piece is a critique of securitization theory's inability to deal with security situations where speaking up would actually be a threat. So therefore there cannot be securitization of an issue because speaking would actually put the speaker in more danger. So she talks about uh, especially victims of, of wartime rape and, and genocide and things where they can't speak up because the speaking up would itself be problematic. And so there's a limitation to how securitization theory would work. Um, and so her, one of her lines of critique there is that her, she is not properly positioned in the critique because she's actually a critic of securitization theory. But then the other line of argument in her response is that the judgment that she makes in her work that certain voices are silenced is not a statement that those voices are actually silent. 
but instead a reflection of a silencing strategy that is going on in the situation. And so the, the people she talks about are being effectively silenced in that particular arrangement, not that they are somehow without voice. So it's a very subtle point, um, which she makes. She does also spend uh, quite a bit of time in that article reflecting critically, self-critically, on her own past research practices and speculating on ways that she might have incorporated issues of race differently and the ways that she would have addressed some of her empirical material differently now. We are, after all, talking about work that she did 20 years ago, as she says, and I would probably have visited it differently if I were to do this uh, nowadays. So that's, that's her response. Uh, the immediate occasion, though, for this particular discussion, we've already mentioned the kind of Twitter storm that's been flaming and brewing around all of this um, was that uh, Barry Buzan and Oli Waver, probably widely acknowledged as like the two central figures of the Copenhagen School security theory, securitization theory, uh, on May 15th this year, so just a few days ago, they published an article in Security Dialogue and came out in the online first uh, thing. And the, the title of that article is Racism and Responsibility, the Critical Limits of Deep Fake Methodology in Security Studies, a reply to Howell and Richter Monpetit. So, and in addition, as I said, they have a 98 page online version of this, um, which goes through this in, in much, much more detail. Um, but the two things I wanna specifically extract from the published version, um, one of them is this notion of deep fake methodology which, and by the way, the high points of this were also echoed in a series of tweets that Oli Waver then sent and has been actively involved in some Twitter discussion about these things. Um, so deepfake methodology, the way that they characterize it, is uh, based on the idea of creating a deepfake video by taking excerpts of different little bits of what people have said and, and using sort of artificial intelligence to knit them together so that it looks like the person has said the thing that you actually kind of want them to say. There's some famous examples of this now circulating. There's a deep fake Obama video, for instance, which is just taking little excerpts of things that Obama has said and then is knitted together computationally. Um, and their argument is that uh, the original critique basically cuts up their words and cuts up points that from different parts of securitization theory and puts them together in a way that does not do justice to the actual project of securitization theory. So that's kind of the first line of critique that, that, that uh, Howell and Richter Montpetit don't actually take seriously the project of securitization theory um, and that they should have. So that's sort of the first line. There is a, a second line here, which is much more technical. And this has to do with certain uh, misattributions of quotations. And this is also, there's a moment in, in the Hansen piece where she does this as well, um, where there are certain things that were misquoted, a particular line that was misquoted about victims um, that, that is updated in one of the corrected versions of the, uh, the Howell and Richter von Petit piece. Um, but in particular at issue in the Buzan and Waver response is a long block quote that is attributed in the published version of the text to Waiver 2015, 
but is actually an epigram that is quoted at the beginning of Waiver 2015 and aren't actually Ole Waiver's words. They are words that are sort of affixed to the front of the article, which raises a whole variety of interesting sort of scholarly practice questions about like, what is the status of an epigram and how, what does it matter that someone used a particular epigram and how, can, how much can you read that into the overall structure of, of the article itself? Um, but there are a number of those kinds of technical critiques that they make, which go along with this idea that the criticism is misplaced because it doesn't quite get the details right of what securitization theory is all about. I'll mention one other thing, just a particular quotation from the article that I think feeds in nicely to what we've been talking about in terms of these different levels uh, at which these, these critiques and responses are being articulated. At one point, who's on in waiver saying, any theory not centered on racism in their sense, and they mean Howell and Victor Montpetit's sense, any theory not centered on racism in their sense is racist, not just more or less capable of analyzing racism, but racist, anti-Black, and white supremacist. And I think in lines of the discussion we were having previously, um, there is a, a different understanding here of what racism means on the part of the critics and, the, and then on Poussin and, and Weber. Where for Buzon and Weber, racism, you might say, is kind of narrowly defined as being about a particular explicit privileging of certain racial and ethnic groups over others. Whereas Howell and Richter Montpetit are operating with a much broader notion of racism as something that is both structural and in the sense of that Ibram Kendi distinction that we introduced earlier, um, where you sort of can't be neutral about it. The theory is either upholding sets of racial hierarchies or actively working to get away from them. Um, so that's the sort of line of the critique. And I want to throw that open now for our distinguished panel to reflect on a little bit. I really want to hear from Jared, because Jared, you said earlier that you also didn't kind of recognize securitization theory in a lot of this criticism. And I'd like mm. to hear more about that. Before you do say that, I do want to interject. I, I think Buzan and Waver understand the idea of systemic racism. I don't think they don't, I don't think the problem is that they don't get it. Mm -hmm. I think that their view, whether we accept it or not, is that the way the critique is articulated, it makes it essentially inescapable that they are engaged in something more like classic racism. Yeah, um, I think you're right. The problem with that, right, is, and, and this is a, a problem about the more broader eco ecology of the debate, is that whilst I think they're right, they leave the question of systemic racism because they say, and I think they're right, that the, the Alison and Melanie don't, don't actually do it. But then they leave that and then it all becomes about then the whole, the whole issue and the stakes at play become then filtered back through, you know, racism, charges of, you know, individual racism. So I think you're right. And I think it's a lot more you know, about broader kind of how, how this plays into broader ecologies of, of debates, if that makes sense. But I'd, I'd like to hear what Jared thinks, actually, because I think your, your point about not being recognized is really important. My sense is that Dan is correct as well. I mean, I, Ole Waver and Barry Buzan are, are smart guys. They've been around. They're not obviously coming out of coming at this from the same perspective as you, Robbie and Nawal, but they recognize structural racism, right? They understand racism as power structures and, you know, sort of the effects that we've talked about here, COVID-19 and who's dying from COVID-19. It's not 
it's disproportionately people of color. Well, why is that? Well, they don't have access to medical resources. They don't, they work in jobs that require more face-to-face -face contact because they've had less access to education and so on, right? I, they, I think they understand that. Um, I do think that as Dan indicated, the nature of the structure of the argument put against them. And again, this sort of maximalist conclusion in the end is they don't, I, they don't use the word cancel, but they do are very clear that they think the, that classical securitization theory is a lost cause and needs to be completely ejected from the discipline, even down to the word. And that's pretty, that's pretty difficult to take, right? Uh, particularly given, as always made the case, particularly given the way the, the argument is structured, right? So it's not a chronological assessment of how the theory develops over time and some kind of excavation of racial or racialized uh, thought or premises. It really does read like a sort of hodgepodge. Okay, well, they said something over here that we can put together with something over here. Um, Ole makes the case that the 2003 uh, Regions and Powers book gets pulled in a lot, even though that's five years, six years after Security New Framework for Analysis and you know, a decade after the 93 book where Ole really puts securitization theory out there in a really profound way. So how can that be a foundational text? How can that be informing uh, sort of the racialized underpinnings of securitization theory? So it feels, I think it probably did feel to them very personal when you bring these elements together, the way that the argument is structured, it does feel very personal. I think that does produce some of these um, unfortunate framings that you, Robbie, brought up. I mean, I, uh, because it becomes now not just an intellectual exercise, but an emotional exercise. Uh, and I, and this is a point I've made on Twitter um, several times. I don't think uh, Ole has handled it perfectly. Uh, Lena's response has been praised over and over again. And, and I think it's, that is the case because it is quite compassionate. Although if you look at this in the sort of how the agenda was set in the original article, Lena's kind of takes a glancing blow, if you will. I mean, she's kind of labeled as an orientalist, but then kind of cut loose. Uh, whereas the focus is unremittingly on Ole and Barry's work. And so it, her stake in this game it, her emotional stake in this game is also very different and, and we're remiss. I mean, I'm, I'm really struck by this generosity and compassion that you talked about, Robbie. You know, we would be remiss to, on both sides, right? These are two junior women or juniorish women. One of them is sort of equal in level to me in terms of being an associate professor, but they're both junior to Ole and, and Barry who have uh, clearly put a lot of thought of this and they have emotional stake in this, but so do Ole and Barry. And it's got to be tough to see all this sort of your a lifetime's work, which is what we're talking about for Ole, being said. Well, <laughs> you know, say la vie. This is when you do racial uh, analysis. This is what happens. It gets thrown out. In terms of the point that I made about not recognizing securitization theory, some of the arguments that the that uh, Howell and, and uh, Richter Montpetit make just I just don't recognize. So, for example, the idea this idea that securitization leads to primal anarchy. I don't. I just don't know where that comes from. I, I understand. You know, Ole makes this case that for why we want to focus on politics, right? Because the the alternative to politics is just sort of brute force. Everybody just you know beating each other up to get what they want. So, but that's really kind of like 
uh, stage setting, that's not integral to the theory. You don't have to go back to the state of nature in order to get to, to we all live in politics. Uh, so, and then, so then securitization eventually leads back to brute uh, anarchy. But no, I mean, it, in securitization theory, as it's been espoused over and over again, that's not the case, right? It leads to authoritization of political systems potentially. So this is what I mean by I don't recognize it. Like I don't understand where this argument comes from. Um, they, you know, they sort of make the case against Ole that uh, he has this normative component that uh, Ole and Barry have this normative component that all things, I would phrase it this way, all things being equal, desecuritization is better than securitization. And what they're reacting against is, again, in the 1990s, this idea, the, the premise that security is a good thing, right? Because if you, if you look at traditional security studies, security is a good thing. You either are secure, you can blow up the other side, or you are insecure, in which case you're manipulated or at the mercy of the other side. And so who wants to be at the mercy of the other side and can have them their existence wiped out with a nuclear barrage? Nobody, right? So you want security. And they're saying... They're, they're pushing back against this idea that security is an unadulterated good. They're trying to say, no, look, let's, let's take a step back. Security isn't this unadulterated good. It can produce all of these really awful political outcomes. That's not to say it always does, but all things being equal, we want to privilege desecuritization, keeping things within normal politics rather than confront the possible pernicious outcome of securitization. But that's not an ironclad rule. So for example, I've used securitization theory to look at the Arab Spring. And I've, uh, I've used it to, set, to try to make sense of the, the street vendor in Tunisia who set himself on fire. That act as a speech act and his securitizing move being directed towards the public rather than the state, right? That's a case in which, you know, the potentially pernicious outcome of securitization maybe doesn't come to play or maybe it does right but it's what they're trying to do is they're trying to problematize it and what i see in the original article doesn't look anything like a problematization of securitization it just looks like oh europe great europe is this bastion of of non-security and therefore or desecurity and therefore everybody should want to be like europe and that's just not what i recognize in the in the development of the theory I mean, I'd like to just come um, add on to that because I think um, when I when I read the the ninety odd page response as well, you know, at, at the end of it, I thought, dis, you know, despite my you know misgivings about how it holds itself as a hostage to, to fortune to actually far right forces, even if it's not intended that way, nonetheless. By the end of it, I was starting to see a, a, a grounds forming for actually a good um, long-term conversation between people doing critical race theory, de decolonial stuff, and security, securitization scholars in, in a way where, you know, my thing would always be, where did those women sco scholars of color who were using securitization theory to, to, to talk about migration and xenophobia, you know, would they have a place around the table? Would they benefit from it? Do you get what I mean? That's the kind of thing I'm, I, I'd be thinking about. And um, I think they, that at the end, they did, Buzan and Weaver did concede one element which is very important because I know it to be very seminal to the work of 
Howell and um, Melanie, which uh, Petit, which is, which is this idea about you know, there is there is not a normal politics which isn't already actually suffering from all the things which come under securitization, right? And and this is partially kind of Lena Hansen's you know feminist critique as well. You, you know it, ali- it aligns with that kind of thing, right? And that comes to this issue about how we how we have a conversation between the different depths and the different dimensions, right? So we've got securitization theory, you know, a set of propositions, a kind of methodology, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then we've got this deeper project about actually uh, excavating the, the, you know, the, the racial logics behind some of the fundamental categories and concepts of, of modern political thought, right? Now, you have to, those two things, you know, don't just automatically put... put on top of each other, but that concession at the end, I think, is the grounds to start actually doing that kind of work. In other words, it, 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 two things can be right at once. You can have a very good critique of the politics of securitization and the way in which actually that folds into racism and xenophobia, right, using securitization theory. And you can also have a critique which says, are there other conceptual frameworks Right, which will allow us to actually even go deeper. Do, do you get what I'm saying? So that we can, so that we can uh, attend to that issue of who said, who's, you know, the, the basic feminist proposition, which is if you're talking about insecurity, man, <laughs> you know, talk about the household first. You know, like, do you get what I mean? So that I think I see. If I want to be really positive about this, and I, I want it to go forward positively, and I think at the moment it's it's really not right. If positively, that's how I would kind of predicate it. And I would say, let's be aware of these different levels, these different kind of ways in which we're coming in and see what eventuates when we're, we do it with our eyes open. The other issue that I want to, I mean, I just want to put on the table, and this is one that, that Ole and Barry make as well. So this is not something, um, you know, sort of unique to me, is that, is that they, the, the theory was never intended to be so there is a theory of sort of securityness, right? Normal politics versus security politics. Ole makes the case that normal politics, the theory doesn't presume a lot about normal politics. I think that's right. I think it is possible to read, particularly the 98 text, as grounding normal politics in liberal democratic politics and missing the ways in which liberal democratic politics privileges some folks over other folks. I don't think the theory itself relies on that, requires that. So there, so there's one thing here, which you disaggregate sort of the presentation of elements of the theory versus the theory itself. But Ole is very clear about this. He never intended the theory to be a substantive theory of security practices out there in the world, right? Because of its radical constructivist perspective toward the, 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 the security ness of things to put it in a really awkward way um it it as i said it de-essentializes security and as a consequence sort of what is security well it's what societies polities societies want to make security and so part of what i felt was going on is that the the howell and richter montpetit I mean, maybe this comes back to this, these unvoiced priors for them about you're either uh, racist or you're anti-racist and there's no sort of neutrality. 
but the theory doesn't, the theory opens up space. I think this is Ole Wavers and I share this. Theory opens up space for investigations about why securitization plays out in some cases and not other cases. I've used the theory in that regard, right? So um, why do we see securitization of China, but not India? Um, so why do we see securitization of, you could look at, well, what role do racialized uh, discourses or racialized conceptions play in security discourses or whatever, right? But it's not a substantive theory of these security practices. And so I felt like Howell and Richter Montpetit were damning the theory for not doing this, having this sort of normative agenda of saying, okay, go out there and look for race in the world. When the theory is, as uh, Ole says, is a, uh, the, I mean, the title of the 98 book is Security, a New Framework for Analysis. It's, a, it's an apparatus to help us go do things to develop substantive theories of security. So, so nothing in the theory says you can't develop a substantive racial theory of international security and use securitization theory to execute or to, to hang that on securitization theory. But the theory itself, securitization theory itself, doesn't mandate that you do so. I mean, you could be a white supremacist and want to make a different kind of argument. Securitization theory doesn't foreclose that either, although I think everybody would find that odious. So I, I, that's also what I mean by not recognizing securitization theory in the original piece. Well, I'll just say something quickly, which is about you know these different genealogies of, of of thought and the ways in which the black radical tradition very very broadly conceived it oftentimes finds itself out of place constrained to history uh constrained to american studies africana studies and 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 not actually um getting retrieved and, and worked with in especially in political science so the person I always think of is Stuart Hall and Stuart Hall is the guy who coins the term Thatcherism um, he uh, you, you know from, uh, from Jamaica initially but you know spends most of his life in the UK very famous for you know cultural studies all that kind of stuff um, but Stuart Hall's work in the 70s was about authoritarianism Right, the uh, political economic crises and the ways in which those crises were attended to by um, uh, by by the by the state and, and and actors in the state by putting in place moral panics. Right now, now those moral panics were racialized, um, but they were very much about uh, about ensuring that the state had an authoritarian hook on society to to drive forward very radical projects neoliberalism etc but with you know the consent quotes of the pop, of the population right now it, i am not saying that securitization theory should be forgotten and let's all do Stuart hall but what i'm saying is Stuart hall was doing that in the 70s right he's extremely well known but very few people take him up in in ir right even though he's one of the most fa famous you know, humanity scholars of the 20th century, right? And there is a lot of work in there which would be interesting to put up with and put into conversation with the, the things that we're just talking about. And so one of the things about this debate and one of the much more deeper kind of, you know, contextual factors of the debate, right, is the, is the 
consistent and it's not intent it doesn't have to be intentional elision of these other sources of 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 knowledge where you don't have to add racism afterwards as a case study do you get what i mean but race becomes fundamental to the analysis even though the analysis is not about people being racist the analysis actually is about driving through neoliberalism in in conditions where otherwise it wouldn't have happened The thing that occurs to me as listening to a lot of this this conversation is that the issue that or or a, a core issue that keeps being sort of should be more on display in the debate but isn't so far is exactly how one identifies the core of a theory and what it means to say that something is the core of the theory or is core is central to the theory. Um, and one might say even that what we're looking at here are very different conceptualizations, very different construals of what securitization theory actually is. Is securitization theory a, a spare delineation of a mechanism whereby speech acts are used to constitute certain kinds of reference objects as a justification for abnormal politics? Or is securitization theory a broader set of substantive claims made by people who use that analytical apparatus to do a number of things. Now, of course, you get into these sorts of debates with almost any of the kind of theoretical schools that we run into being across the social sciences, but particularly in IR, right? So what's realism exactly, right? So, okay, so what's core to it? And, and how do we figure this out? Um, I think what's, what's important to remember, and I, think, I don't think this is gonna be too controversial, but, um, you know, the delineation of the core of a theory is not an exogenous observation. It's an endogenous piece of the kind of intellectual politics of theorizing, right? So by saying this is core to the theory, one is articulating a particular way of reading the theory or a way that one might actually kind of proceed with it. Um, and certainly it seems like Howell and Richter Montpetit have a different way of construing the core of the theory or what they think of as core to the theory uh, differently than, than, uh, than Buzan and Waver do. Um, and what's interesting about the whole exchange is it makes me kind of reflect on, you know, I mean, I wrote a whole book that was critical of Huntington in, in, you know, the early part of my career, a dissertation book, right? So, you know, the West isn't a substantial object. It's a social construct that is produced and it has certain kinds of effects, right? I went back and I looked at the index, race and in the index. Right? I don't talk about race. Um, do I not talk about race? Well, why do I not talk about race? I don't talk about race because at the time, in terms of the commonsensical understandings of what I was dealing with, it did not occur to me to say, oh, well, what's really going on here is this kind of a racist argument that Huntington is making. And more, more damagingly, perhaps, part of the appeal of the, of the notion of the West, I now would say, has to do with its racial character and its racialized character and the way it can function within political discourse as a kind of acceptable shorthand for whiteness. Um, did that occur to me when I was writing dissertation in the late 90s? Did that occur to me when I was publishing the book in the early 2000s? Not really. I mean, it was not really central despite the best efforts of certain people, including a couple of people on my committee to like push me in that direction. Um, it was not something that really is central to the argument that I make. Um, if I were to go back and rewrite that book now, would I pay more attention to that? Probably. 
um, you know, because I would, I would look at these things in different sorts of ways. Um, so at its best, I think this exchange, if we take kind of Robbie's optimistic construal of sort of what might come out of this, um, and I think you see this in Lena Hansen's response as well. Um, oh, okay, let's use this as an opportunity to do that kind of work, to do that kind of intellectual work of rethinking the foundations that we have, thinking about the ways in which we may have utilized notions that now we look at, oh, wait a minute, those, those have some kind of racial, racial coloring to them that, that we might not have been sensitive to when we first utilized them. Um, and I'm using, excuse me, I'm using we in the sense of like the ideal typical white scholar. Um, I think in many ways, non-white scholars have known this for a while. A lot of them have anyway. Um, but, you know, sometimes it takes white people a while for us to catch up. Um, but going, no, actually, there's, there's, there's something important about this that we really do need to think about. Um, and it is too bad that the way this debate is currently playing out, there's there's enough defensiveness on all sides that I'm, I worry that we're going to miss the actual opportunity to have that kind of complex conversation about the different ways in which the racist and colonial heritage of the whole field plays out in our everyday debates. Um, and, and we should really be using this as an opportunity to have those kinds of, of reflective conversations. Um, and I hope that maybe what we've tried to do here today is like maybe put some more of that stuff out there so that maybe we can, you know, contribute to, to turning this into in what I hope would be a more productive direction. So that's my thought. We have been talking for a really long time. I really wanted to thank you all. Uh, we have to wrap things up, but I hope that in some capacity, maybe we can have some of you on again to talk about some things because I, I think this was really neat. Goodbye, everybody. It's been an awesome conversation. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, uh, thanks, everyone. I really appreciate it. I learned so much from, you know, Robbie, Dan, Jared, Patrick. This was a wonderful conversation. It was a breath of fresh air, I think, in terms of what we all needed at this time. And I just hope that this is a more productive dialogue moving forward that scholars and practitioners can benefit from. So thank you and bye everybody. And thank you from me. It was a, it was a great honor and a pleasure. And uh, thank you, Dan and, and uh, Patrick, you're doing a real service to the discipline by hosting this. So we've come to the end of the episode. I apologize for the audio quality, which I know was not great. And I'm very sorry that this ran for an hour and 45 minutes. I tried really hard to find a midpoint to break it up in, and I just could not do it. That being said, you might be wondering why this episode has a part one on it. After all, it sounded pretty complete. Everybody signed off. Well, the fact of the matter is that after we did the sign-offs, we hung around and we spent maybe... 20 minutes, 30 minutes, talking about more stuff, talking about editorial practices, talking about the notion of grievance studies, a bunch of other stuff. So that is actually going to come out in a part two, which is something like an epilogue, and that should be out pretty soon. If you enjoyed this, I think you'll, you'll like that. If you did enjoy this, I think some of the subjects there are a bit different and they might interest you. 
But I do want to thank on behalf of Patrick and myself, our guests, for coming again. It was really neat to do this. I thought I'd certainly like to hear from you all if you are interested in more whiskey optional things where we do panels. Uh, If you are, let us know. If you have ideas about what they might be on, let us know as well. You should know how to reach us by now, but our information is freely available on the web. You can always email us at whiskeyindigoromeo at gmail.com. That is not W-I-R at gmail.com. It is indeed whiskeyindigoromeo, spelled out, at gmail.com. And I don't really have a cool sign-off, so I'll just say bye. Bye.